Thank you for downloading Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Purdue's North America. This special series is a curated collection of premium Tisha B'Av content from the Pardes archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to these solemn days. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Nine Days, Nine Podcasts. And here we are, uh, just uh, beginning the traditional three weeks uh, in commemoration of the Churban HaMikdash, of the destruction of the Temple. Um, and I thought it was appropriate uh, this time of year to open a book that we, you know, maybe read through in a sort of lament form um, when we're sitting on the floor in all sorts of different locations, uh, whether it's uh, at the Kotel or whether in some way, um, sometimes we, we even imagine the Navi, the Prophet Yirmiyahu, or whoever wrote um, Eicha sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem and penning uh, the book of Eicha. And uh, we sort of do exactly the same thing collectively on the night of, uh, on the night of Tisha B'Av, where we sit on the floor like mourners, uh, engulfed in loss, and uh, stricken by the experience of bereavement, imitating or maybe recreating that mode of being. And I guess with a remove of thousands of years, of 2,000 years, uh, we're trying to evoke those self-same emotions uh, of loss and pain. But uh, if, we, if we read Eicha in this regard, what is Eicha actually, actually telling us? What story does Eicha narrate? What does it tell? So I would say that really, in a sense, Eicha tells the story but from a very uh, oblique angle, a very interesting angle. Because Eicha is the ultimate kina, the ultimate, the quintessential lament poem. Um, as we will see in a few minutes, we might even say it is almost like an articulation of a, of a sigh, an articulation of a moan, if such a thing can be put into words. Um, Chazal, the rabbis uh, in Gemara and Baba Batra, tell us that Eicha was the words of Yirmiyahu himself, Jeremiah. And if you think about Jeremiah, we're talking about a prophet who for 40 years walks around Yerushalayim. Uh, you can take it tonight from that bookshelf. Then come sit down. Um, um, Jeremiah walks around for 40 years warning the people about the impending calamity, and then it happens. Uh, if you want, this is his ultimate moment of truth, because this proves that he was correct all along. But of course, there is no joy in that moment. It is the ultimate failure because the nation is in ruins, the temple is burnt, and the people are going into exile. What could be more terrible than that? And uh, he, the great survivor of the first uh, destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE, these are, according to the rabbis, his own lamentations, his own poems, his feelings as the fires of Jerusalem burn around him. And therefore, you know, the idea is that as you, as you read this book, it should evoke exactly those emotions. You better be able to, I don't know how I could say it, but see the fire, smell the burning, as you, can, as you actually read these words. Um, and they are designed, if you want to, resonate with the grief, the shock, the catastrophe of the Khorban. So what we're going to do today is, if you can open to the book of Eicha, for those of you not quite sure where it is in the Tanakh, you have to turn to Ketuvim. 
you'll probably find it about three quarters of the way through your Tanakh, or even a bit further than that. If you turn to Ketuvim, you will find the order goes to Hilim, Mishlei, Eov, and then it gets into the, the Megillot, which are in the order of the year. The, the way they recited, Shir Hashirim first, Pesach, then Rut, and then we have here, Eicha. So let's say, let's uh, take a look at, at Eicha. Now, before we even get there, uh, let me relate to the angle that we're eventually going to take in this book. And uh, this uh, lecture was called, I better check what it is called, Is God Our Judge, Our Enemy, or Our Source of Faith? We're going to use Eicha as a book which will examine questions of theology. How does Eicha look at God? And uh, here, I'm, whenever you're describing God, some people get very sensitive. They're worried that you can't really say anything about God. So I think I need to possibly uh, give one bit of introduction. As I said just now, we are in the segment of Tanakh that is known as Ketuvim. So let's just think for a minute the difference between what we call Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, Tanakh. Torah, why are things in Torah and not in Navi? So I think, you know, some people might say, well, it tells a whole story. It tells a whole story from the beginning of time till Israel come into the land. But if we wanted to tell the whole story until Israel come into the land, we might include the book of Yoshua in the Torah. In fact, it would be a really nice end to the Torah to say we actually got there, you know. Somewhere near the beginning, Avram's promised the land. In Yoshua, we actually get there. It's almost as if we, we finished the story of the Torah before we've reached the finale. And yet, of course, Torah itself is a separate unit because we say that Torah is a different degree, a different pedigree of prophecy than anything else. Torah is Torah's Moshe. It is the words of Moshe, of Moshe Rabbeinu, that he dic- was dictated by God. According to the traditional understanding, Moshe was a Navi of a degree that none other, and he could actually take dictation, verbal dictation, from the Ribbonosh Olam, from God himself. Thus, the words of the five books of Moses, as we call them, are on a degree of prophecy unlike any other. Nevi'im is a separate segment. It also is a message from God to man. However, all other prophets were in a different league. And they sort of got uh, what Chazal talk about, Moshe having the Aspaklaria Hameira, the clear glass, whereas all the other Nevi'im, all the other prophets had Aspaklaria She'eno Meira, call it frosted glass. It's like, you know, you can see something through clear glass, you can really see the image. You see something through some sort of uh, frosted glass, you can see something's going on, but it's not as clear. Um, all the other prophets, if I take Maimonides' version, uh, received certain riddles or images, or, or they saw some sort of, uh, I don't know, almost, almost like a, a movie in front of them, and they had to interpret the message. Uh, we get direct examples of this where Jeremiah, for example, sees a bubbling pot with its... With its uh, spouts from the north, and he says, oh, I sense there's something bubbling and burning and scalding coming from the north. And then he sees an almond branch, a makel shaked, and he says, right? 
The first thing to bloom is the almond tree. He says, oh, that means it's going to be happening very, very soon. It's an example of how they saw images, and the role of the prophet was to be trained to interpret them. So it's a message from God, but it needs interpretation by the prophet. Say very simply, Torah, the words are godly. In the Vim, the ideas are from God, but the words are the words of the prophet. And hence, we will say, and this is uh, how the Talmud talks about it, that therefore you can identify a very different literary style to take Yirmiyahu, then to Yechezkel, then to Amos, then to all the different prophets, because they wrote with their own words. The ideas are ideas of God, the words are the words of man. Why am I coming, why am I giving this long winding introduction? Because here we get to Ketuvim, the writings, the third section of Tanakh. And if I go back to Maimonides, it is Maimonides who says that this is not a message from God to man. Instead, it is a message from man to God. Okay? It is certainly a message of man, penned by man, designed by man. The classic example of this would be Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms. Well, the book of Psalms is a series of different, it's almost like a, uh, a, a diary, some sort of uh, journal where somebody puts down their deepest religious prayers to God in moments of distress, in moments of, of triumph, in moments of frustration, in moments of loneliness, and so forth and so forth. But says the Rambam, these are the words of human beings directed to God. He says they're imbued almost with a divine inspiration, and that's why they make it into Tanakh. But they're definitely the words of man. If you want to know where the Rambam talks about it, it's in Moran of where he defines all these different categories in the Guide to the Perplexed. The reason why I'm saying this is because it's important when, we, when I say that there is theology in Eicha um, to realize that these are human thoughts, human feelings about God. And we are gaining a window into the author of Eicha's view of God, and I should rather say, not view of God, but views of God. Because we shall see, in the journey we're going to take, several different angles of how to view God through this book. Um, are any of them authoritative? It's difficult to say. If the author is the prophet uh, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, I still don't know whether that makes them authoritative. What we have is the window of a prophet who's not expressing God's message to him. Again, let me backtrack one stage. The rabbis say that Jeremiah wrote Eicha. Jeremiah is a prophet. You'd think if he wrote Eicha, which bit of Tanakh would you put it in? Nevi'im, the book of the prophets, not the writings. Except that the book of Jeremiah are the messages he got from God. Tell the people, Ka'amar Hashem. What's the book of Eicha? His own journal. His own responses, his human response. So what I'm saying is it doesn't need to come with any, anybody's hersher. These are Jeremiah's thoughts. And if we want to go with the academic community's view that it wasn't Jeremiah himself or we just don't know who wrote it, as far as I'm concerned, that's fine as well. Because tradition chose to take these five chapters, which are written beautifully, uh, whether it was Jeremiah or another author, they're written so carefully, so delicately, and decided this would be, if you want, the freeze-frame image, the human response to tragedy. So let's open the book and see what it says. Okay, so I hope everybody has Eicha in front of them. And uh, let's take a look.
I'll read the first few lines and we will see uh, what we can say about them. Uh, you know, even before we get to the first line, sorry, a lot of introductions. Eicha is written on an Aleph Bet acrostic. Um, you will see Eichaya Shvabadad Pasuk Aleph starting with an Aleph, Pasuk Bet starting with a Bet, Bachotif Kebalaila, Galta Yehudami Oni Barov Avodah, starting with a Gimel, Dar Chetzion Pasuk Dalit. Most of the chapters are like that except for the last chapter. Many people have suggested that the idea of writing poetry, which goes through the entire alphabet, is very, very clear. It expresses totality. In the case of Ashrei or Shrei Vetecha, or Hilal David, I should really call it, right, which is also based on an alphabet, it is expressing that we will praise God with every letter of the alphabet. Here, it is saying we will cry with every letter of the alphabet. We will cry with the totality of our being. Let's read a few lines and then we'll say, make a few observations about the theological implications of this chapter. Eicha yashva badad ha'ir rabati am haitak almana. Eicha, translated as woe or alas. Maybe it is simply again the articulation of, literally means eicha maybe. How could it be? Gewalt, right? Something like that. How does it yashva badad? How does the city sit lonely? Ha'ir am, the city which was so full of people. Haita ka'almana has become like a widow. Rabati bagoyim, sarati bamdinot, haita lamas. Okay? The city which was rabah bagoyim, was so great amongst the nations, was ruling amongst kingdoms, has now become um, taxed. Bachotif kebalayla. And here, she weeps at night. Vidimata lechaya. And her tears are on her cheeks. No one can console her. From all who loved her. All her friends or maybe even all her lovers have betrayed her. They have become enemies. Judah, the southern kingdom, has gone into exile in a state of Oni and Rovavadah, for slavery and distress. He Goyim has sat amongst the nation, Lomatzah finds no rest. So let's try and understand what we are saying here. The notion of Jerusalem, who is she? She is Jerusalem. Not the Jewish people, but Jerusalem herself. And we personify Jerusalem as if Jerusalem is a person, lonely, Depressed, okay, Yashva Badad, alone, depressed, degraded, okay, and we will see in a few minutes, not only that, but shamed, full of guilt, and even violated. So let's try and see some of these things through the text. The first thing I would like to point out is this notion that Jerusalem is entirely alone, like it says in the first line, Yashva Badad, the city that sits alone. If you want to see this even more, you will see it, for example, in verse 2, Pasuk Bet, where it says, Ein lamanachem. No one is even there to console her. And this is a constant theme throughout this parak. For example, look in Pasuk Tet once again. It says there, Tumatab la. No one is there to comfort her. This is repeated again. Verse 16. 
על אלה אני בוכיה, איני, איני ירד המים, כי רחק ממני מנחם, משיב לחשים, כי רחק ממני מנחם. There is no one to console me. Okay? Again in the next verse. Parasatsion biyadeh, אין מנחם לה. No one is there to give any sort of consolation. And last of all, in Parak Chaf Aleph, Shamu ki ne'anacha ani, ein menachem la. So Jerusalem is alone. Other things express this too. So if you look, for example, in verse 4, Darchei Tzion Avelot. The ways of Zion, which used to be full of people coming for the Chagim and people visiting the capital city, all of the byways are empty now. They're all empty. Or if you look at verse 7, uh, it tells us in the end of verse 7, Ein ozerla, there is no one to help. So there is this sense of absolute abandonment. And that's what we have. The other thing that we see through this chapter is the sense of crying. Jerusalem is simply in tears, weeping. This sense of, uh, and again, if you want to, to see it, of course, the first example is in Pasuk Bet, verse 2, where we read, Jerusalem cries at night. Verse 2, Jerusalem's crying. More tears in verse 16. Verse 16, for these I cry, I weep. Not only crying, but sighing. Right? We don't have tears. When the tears run out, we simply have sighing. And again, this is right through the chapter. If you want to see it, the word here is ne'enach, to sigh. Look at verse 4, for example. Okay? Where you will see, the, the, the koanim are sighing. Or look at verse 8, where it says, at the end of verse 8, end of Pasukhet, this is a constant theme. Verse 11, Everybody's sighing. So if we had crying, now they're sighing, they're moaning. And again, at the end of the chapter, we have more of it, where we see in verse 21, They see I'm sighing, and of course, Almost the last la- words, ki rabot anchotai, because great are my sighs, bilibi davai. So this gives you the atmosphere of what we're trying to describe in this first chapter. We're trying to describe an image of absolute abandonment, really emotional collapse, uh, uncontrollable crying, sense of being totally alone. Now we said we would talk a little bit about theology. So where does God feature in this entire landscape that we're discussing here? So let's take a look. So if you look, uh, let's read verse um, 5 together. Verse 5 in chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1. Hayut Sarah Larosh. Her enemies have moved ahead. Oyveha Shalu. Her enemies have, uh, it seems like possibly from the word shalal, have despoiled her. And now look why. Why have we been in a situation where our enemies are at the head? Ki Hashem hoga al 
because God has afflicted her for her many transgressions. In other words, why does Jerusalem suffer? Because it has sinned. This continues here, um, if you look at verse 8. Let's take a look at verse 8. Chet, and this may be the clearest statement, Chet chata Yerushalayim al hayata. Jerusalem sinned, therefore she has become a nida. We'll come back to this a little bit. She has become an outcast, let's call it that way. Um, another example um, which we have here in verse 14. Verse 14. And here, the yoke of my sins is in his hand. Right? What do they do? They have become twisted and they wrap around my necks. I feel as if I'm almost being suffocated. By what? By the yoke. The yoke of what? Of sins. And by the way, in whose hand are they? It seems like they're in God's hand. Okay? Another example. Verse 18. Okay? Verse 18. And maybe this is the ultimate statement. Sadiku Adonai Kipil Mariti. God is righteous because I disobeyed him. It's true. In the next line, we ask for help. We can't ask God for help, right? So we say, Everybody else listen and hear my pain. But again, it is very clear that this is our own fault. Or look in verse 20. Okay? God, see that it's painful for me. My stomach's turning over. My heart has turned over. Because I have rebelled. And what we have here is a situation in which over and over and over we have this idea. Israel has sinned. And because Israel has sinned, they deserve what's coming to them. Right? Sadiku Hashem kipiu mariti. Okay? Um, I just want to refer to one thing which was maybe a little bit um, difficult to hear um, in verse 8, where it says, Jerusalem sinned, and therefore she has become like a nida. Okay? What is that all about? Um, so here I refer to a, a scholar of biblical poetry and literature, Adele Boleyn, where she talks very strongly about Echa being filled with feminine imagery. Let's point that out. Um, we even have in the very first line, right, that the uh, Yushalayim has become like what? A widow, right? Yushalayim is always described as a woman here. You can see it, for example, in verse 15 in this chapter, where we talk about the idea of Betulat Bat Yehuda, or, for example, what we read before, all her lovers have abandoned her. Right? In other words, she is betraying, she is seen as having affairs. Okay? And the most intense imagery is, of course, this idea of Nida, um, which represents, I guess, since Nida imbues a woman with impurity, it's obviously a statement which says that Jerusalem has become impure. Right? impure, and that in some way has been restricted 
It also could be that the word nida doesn't only indicate nida itself, but Adele Berlin says it relates to the phrase na vanad, right? The notion of wandering. Right? I'm not fully convinced with that one, but uh, we will simply say that it's part of the whole set. If there is some sin, which in, if we're already describing Yerushalayim as a woman, and there is some sin which particularly was going to apply to the woman, then this imagery of Nida fits into this set. Okay, let's go back to God, though. What do we have here? We have a situation whereby we are justifying God. We are guilty. We sinned. Jerusalem sinned. And therefore, it is getting what is coming to her. Sadiku Hashem ki piu mariti. We're absent. We're at, we, Jerusalem bears its guilt, and therefore it is crying, it is sighing, it is lonely, but everything is, is deserved. One place where we do turn up at, at the end of every chapter, by the way, every chapter of Eicha, certainly the first four, we always turn to God for help. Whatever, however we're related to God to this moment, and you actually see it at the end, a call for, a call for sympathy and a call for vengeance, right? So we do say at the end, in verse 20, God, see how difficult this is for me. And then right at the end, in verse 22, God, let all of, I might have done evil, but they've done even worse evil. So pay them back, God. Okay. But more or less, the idea in chapter 1 is that God is judging us for our sins. We sinned, God is our judge. Sadiku Hashem Mariti. God is righteous. We have rebelled. Let's open chapter 2 and we will see a totally different image of the chapter. Um, let's just read the opening paragraph again like we did with the first parak, and we will see quite um, amazing imagery. How God, in his anger, has rejected the daughter of Zion. He has thrown from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel, and he has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. First, even before we even examine the phraseology, I suppose we need to think about that image of even throwing something from heaven to earth. Can you imagine? Something being hurled from heaven to earth, the momentum it picks up, the notion of taking the Tiferet Israel, the beauty of Israel, and, you know, I, I think of Moshe smashing the Luchot, and then think about God, you know, literally throwing Israel out and just free fall, you know, down to earth. That's quite an image. Now, in this first pasuk, how is God being described? What are his emotions? Anger. Anger okay? You see twice in the, cha- twice in the, in the line. Okay? How he rejects Israel with his anger, he, with his very violent imagery. He throws from heaven to earth. Right? Israel, the Zachar By the way, his footstool would probably be what? The Jerusalem, maybe, or even the temple, right? The temple. In the day of his anger. Let's keep reading. Okay? God has laid Jerusalem waste. He has no pity. 
at Kol Naot Yaakov, all of the pastures of Yaakov, Harasp Evrato, in his fury, he destroyed Misurei Bat Yehuda, the fortresses of Yehuda. He has brought them down as low as the ground. He has um, Chilel. He has profaned, maybe cursed, um, the kingdom of Israel. Now we don't just have Af, Apor, but we have Chori Af. In mad fury, he has cut down Kol Keren Yisrael, all the honor of Israel. He has pulled back his right hand before the enemy. And he has burnt in Yaakov like a fiery furnace. It is, it is uh, consumed around. And now look at this. Verse 4. He pulls back the keshet, the bow, right? He pulls back the bow like an enemy. His right hand is like an enemy. And God slaughters every beautiful person, it would seem. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, his fury is poured out like anger. Haya Hashem Ka'oyev. God is like an enemy. Bila Yisrael, Bila Kormalamoteha, etc., etc., etc. By the way, if you want more anger, look at the end of chapter, oh, of verse 6, okay, where we have the anger coming again. Vayin Atz Bezama Po Melech Bechohein. And God is actively doing this. If you look at verse 7, Verse 7, Zanach Hashem Yisbachor, God abandoned his altar. Ni'er Migdashor, he raised his temple. His gear biyad oyev chomotamonotea, he gave the walls into the enemy. Kol matnu b'ved Hashem ki yom mo'ed. I think we can see here a very different image of God. God here is not the way we described him in chapter 1. In chapter 1, God was the judge. He judged the people for what they'd done. And they received their punishment. But it was very clear that the Oyev, the enemy, was somebody else. Okay? If you look back at chapter 1, you will see all the time, you know, it talks about how Jerusalem has Vivav Tzarav, all its enemies around. But it doesn't say that the enemy is God. God is the judge. We have sinned, and therefore, we deserve what's coming to us. Suddenly now, God has gone into an even more... Um, Aggressive mode, or God is being perceived. Right? I, I always wonder what happened between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Right? You know, there are some people I mentioned, the Chazal say that Jeremiah wrote all of the chapters. But there have been certain people who have suggested that this was, each para, each chapter, was authored by somebody different. Could these re- reflect different modes of faith? Could these chapters reflect different modes of experience? Somebody who, you know, didn't, was it, was, was, relating to the national tragedy, right, can stand aside a little bit and say, this is so terrible, but, but this person really feels betrayed by God, or really feels that God is literally pulling back the arrow. Um, very, very powerful imagery of God actually destroying Israel, hurling from heaven to earth. This is, uh, this is quite something. Um, if you want to see how this comes out, or at least to, to my mind, um, let's take a look at the end of the chapter, and uh, we will see what we say to God 
towards the end of the chapter, chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start by looking at verse 17. Pasuk Yud Zayin. Which continues this theme. Asa Hashem Asher God did what he planned to do. He fulfilled exactly what he predicted from the days of old. We were told if we sin, we get into trouble. And he fulfilled what he predicted. Okay. Again, notice this idea. God has no mercy. Right? Here, actually, the enemy is the enemy and not God. He's allowed your enemies to be... To be uh, uh, to rejoice over you. But now, look... Um, how he talks in verse 19. Kumi Roni Balaina. Get up. And Roni, Ron can be joy, but here it means the opposite of joy. Cry out in the night to the Rosh Ashmurot. In the midnight's watch. Right? They had the Ashmurot, the different watches of the night. Get up in the middle of the night and cry. Shifri Kamayni Bech, Nochach Penei Hashem. Cry. You pour out your heart like water towards God. What are you going to do? You're going to hold up your hands. Why? By the way, in ancient times, the way they used to pray, um, we know this from Sefer Malachim, which tells us how Solomon prayed. And we know this from Sefer Ezra, which tells us how Ezra prayed. In both cases, they describe somebody praying on their knees with their hands outstretched. Um, and it probably, that is the, I guess we don't kneel anymore because of the Christians. At least this is what uh, Rabbi Daniel Sperber says in his book on Min Yisrael. says, we stopped kneeling when the Christians started doing that. Um, and uh, if you've seen the Muslims pray, they pray like this. Maybe we stopped holding out our hands, right, at some, because of also some sort of religious interference. Whichever way, we don't pray like that anymore. Right? Uh, that we know. Um, but it's fascinating to think when they say, hold out your hands, it means cry out to God. Pray to God. What are we praying for? Right? If you look here on verse 19, hold out your hands, for the hand, for the life of your baby, for your little children who are completely enveloped in famine, on every corner. And now what do we do? We address God directly. Re'e Hashem. Look God. Vahabita. Look on. Lemi Olaltako. Who are you treating this way? Almost like saying, like, I don't know, Abraham at Sodom, right? Khalila Hashem. Who are you? Who are you treat what are you who are you doing this to? Right? We said there is feminine imagery here. The ultimate betrayal of the mother is if she can't look after her child. All the more so if the children die and she has to actually eat her children. Right? If, children, if women are actually eating their children, what in your temple, your loyal servants are going to be killed? And we, we describe it. Describe it, Shachvula, Eretz, Chutzot, Narva, Zakein. Again, everywhere, on every street, 
There are young and old lying dead. My youth have died, have been killed. God, you killed on the day of your anger. I think you hear the, how can we say it any other way? Um, the rage. The rage coming out of this chapter. It's a very, very, sac- it almost sounds like a sacrilegious chapter. How can somebody talk this way to God? And yet, this is exactly what we say. Um, we, we, we're describing somebody who doesn't know how to contain their emotions. Uh, by the way, one can very much see this as evidence of deep faith. Because clearly this person who's writing this really believes that God is doing this to him. You know, what, what could be more a sign of faith than saying, God, you're doing this to me, not... Oh, suddenly the enemy came and God, you're somehow behind the scenes, right? You know, by some divine uh, calculation, we deserve this. No, actually, God, you are the enemy. It is your arrow which is pulled back. It is your anger I'm feeling. And therefore, literally stands up to God with their hands, maybe even with their dead babies in their hands, sorry to say, and shouts out to, to God, how can you be doing this? Where is not your mercy, right? You created a world of mercy where... Mothers are meant to take care of their children. You are not exhibiting any mercy. All we feel is your anger. Lochamal, it says time after time, there is no mercy. That is what you've done. Okay, so that's quite a startling chapter. So if we have chapter one, right, God is the judge, right, we were wrong. By the way, notice in this chapter, we don't mention that we were wrong. You can look through the chapter. There isn't really a lot of talk about, talk about our sins the sense is here um, just the sense of absolute destruction and desolation all around. And we're not relating to any sort of like uh, equation of sin and punishment. We're just looking at the brute force of Hishlich Mishamayim Aretz from heaven to earth. We feel like we've just suffered from this, you know, whirlwind of punishment. Hashem has done it. And all we can do is like recognize it. And then appeal for mercy. Of course, as I said, the chapter ends with, um, uh, again, a call for vengeance. But uh, if you want a, a much lighter one than we had in the previous chapter. Our third image is going to be taken from chapter 3. Um, and chapter 3... Um, Oh, sorry, one, one more thing I just want to say before we leave chapter 2. There is no doubt that there are two main things. I said we, we don't describe so much uh, our sins, but there are two things that we describe in chapter 2. And we've already seen both of them. One is the, um, is the constant focusing upon the temple, right? Hadom Raglai, and uh, if you look later on, you can talk about the Pasukhet, the Chel Vachoma, right? Pasuk Zion, verse 7, the Mizbeach, the Mikdash, it comes up all, all over the place. Um, the other thing that they talk all about is the children. Right? And it seems like these are the two areas, I mean, if you want the, uh, the, the, the clear example of that is uh, where you will see in verse 11, Chalubid Motainai, I've got no tears left in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11. When you have um, babe and child 
who are suffering in the um, streets of the capital. They say to their mothers, We got no food. When they lie there as if dead, they're, they're starving. Um, etc. etc. And the two things which maybe make us feel such a sense of outrage is exactly this. This reversal of the way things are meant to be. If God turns against, it's one thing if God turns against his people, the people sin, but you turn against your temple. Right? It's one thing if God, God uh, attacks the adults, but you're attacking the children. Right? You're reversing mother and child, and these things are going to you know, form the center of chapter two. Okay, let's take a look at chapter three. Chapter three has a completely different beat than the rest of the, of the book. In some uh, readings, in some uh, trope, they read it with a different, even a different tune. In my shul, in Alon Shvut, uh, they use a whole different uh, um, laning for this, uh, for this chapter. It's also made up of very short verses. You'll notice this time it's not one Pasuk Aleph. It's actually three Pesukim of Aleph, and three Pesukim of Bet, and three Pesukim of Gimel, and three Pesukim of Dalet. That's why it's, a very, it's, quite, it's the longest chapter. Right? It's also difficult to read, because it's all in very short verses. There's no variation in the poetry. And it's almost, I sometimes feel as if uh, the person's almost, uh, how should I say, breathless um, by this point. Uh, the author here is, uh, is almost breathless. It begins with some very interesting, a very interesting phrase. Ani hagever ra'ani b'shevet evratil. I am the man who ra'ani. Okay? I have seen suffering. I have known affliction. B'shevet evratil. Right? Shevet is a stick. With the stick of his fury. Whose fury? Doesn't really explain. You imagine God, right? Um, that's the way um, it is understood by Rashi. I'll just read you Rashi. I'm sorry you don't have it uh, on the sheet. Um, I am the most uh, desperate of all the Nevi'im. I've only seen suffering from the moment I've been born, says Jeremiah. Right? And even worse, because of the destruction of the temple, what's Meshebed Avrato? Through God's stick. Through God's, you know, staff. However, the Ibn Ezra, uh, in his independent way, which he frequently takes, admit, acknowledges, he says, Amru Kadmonenu, the rabbi said, Kizot Katva. Yehu it could be Jeremiah saying, because the rabbis say that Jeremiah wrote this, in which case, I am the man who has suffered, is Jeremiah. Then he says, Or it really could be anyone. <laughs> this really is the voice. It is the personified voice of exile. It is every man telling his story, his hardships. It is male and female. Um, maybe the physical torture of this chapter as we all read it lends itself to it being a male voice we don't know maybe it's the story of the individual rather than a city maybe it's Jeremiah's notebook we don't know but we have this sense of the Shevet Evrato this stick which is beating this uh, truncheon this uh, you know this crowbar 
which, uh, of course, if you're hit with a stick, it breaks your bones, right? As the poem says. Um, this sense of torturing. Uh, now, it's interesting. Who's, who's holding the stick? So Rashi told us God. God is not going to be mentioned until verse 18 in this chapter. He's not going to be mentioned until verse 18. Um, but let's take a look a little bit at the chapter and see um, what it's, how it's going to relate to God. Um, take a look at it. Here we go. I am the man who has seen affliction through the rod of his wrath. He has led me through to a place which has darkness and no light. He turns me over all the day. In other words, I've not given any rest, right? My, my flesh, my skin is worn away. She bites my time. My bones are broken. I feel like he's built something around me. Rosh Utzla'ah, misery and hardship. Feels, and we'll see. I am like the living dead. I am walking through darkness. Just like the dead are seen in a place of darkness. That's where I feel I am. Gadar, verse 7. I am walled in. I can't get out. The sense of suffocation, of endless suffering. Okay. I'm weighed down. Even though I try and pray to God. He ain't there. My prayers are closed up. Okay? He doesn't even say the heavens are closed up. It's almost as if... Well, we'll see whether he's given up hope. Okay? But, my prayers are stopped up. You know, it's almost as if... I, I don't know what stage, you know, if we can imagine prayers coming out of our mouths and going up to heaven. Right? So it's almost as if my prayers stopped, not at the gates of heaven, but almost like at this level. Right? Satam tefilati. My, my prayers are stopped up. And again, Gadar Darchai Begazit. My ways have been, a Geder is a wall. Right? Gazit. Those people who are archaeologists in the room or uh, archaeology buffs will know Gazit. Right? Gazit are fine hewn stones. Right? Like some of you might have seen, you know, from Ramat Rachel and other places. You put these stones, they were so smooth, you put them together, you didn't, they didn't have a crack between them. When they say, when he says, he means there's not even a bit of light showing through. I am completely walled in. I've got nowhere to go. Now, he describes God even more. Uh, or seems to be God he's describing in verse 10. He describes God as a, as a bear or a lion that you don't know when he's going to you know, it's like some horror movie, right? I don't know, where you're, I, know, I, I can't watch these, I just fast forward those sort of movies. I can't watch those scenes where everything's dark, right? Where you've got no way out, and there's something about to pop out at you, right? Um, that's what he's describing, that's what he's living through. Somewhere in the darkness, there is an Aryeh, there is a lion, there is a, a bear, and it's just going to pounce, but I don't know when, because I can't see, because it's dark, right? And he continues in this way. In verse 12, we have the same image of he has bent his bow. Um, verse 14, right? I've become the laughing stock to all people. I am the laughing stock of the world. And um, if, you, if you keep reading, let's just uh, take a look um, at verse 17. Because uh, so far, 
the author has just described his desperation, but he hasn't related to God. And we want to know what he has to say about God. So let's take a look. He says here, Vatiznach, verse 17, Vatiznach mishalom nashi. I thought that my life had no hope of peace. Nashi titova. All of my goodness had gone. Vomar, and I initially said, Abad nitzchi v'tochalti me'ashem. My strength and hope have perished before God. Interestingly enough, right? Suddenly he turns to God in prayer, verse 19. Recall my distress and misery, etc., etc. Now, all of this is describing a terrible situation. Um, but let's see how the author here relates to God. And here, suddenly, he's going to talk about how wonderful God is. It's a surprise. Verse 21. This I'm going to remember, and this is going to give me hope. God's kindness never ends. His mercy never goes away. Like the morning, the sun comes up every morning. You're really faithful. In other words, I can rely on you. Verse 24. My portion is with God, I say. I'll wait for him. God will be good to those who hope for him. Who would expect at this point, at the depths of everything we've seen, when you're in the dark, nothing's changed. But in the, in the, in the, in the mind, in the soul of the sufferer here, who says, I've seen the worst. My bones are broken. There's no way out. It's dark. The lion's about to pounce. What's he thinking? Tov, tov, tov. Right? The three tets are all tov. God is really good. If I just wait, he'll come through. I know. It's remarkable. Right? It's remarkable that we, he can have um, this feeling. Look at verse 31. Right? God won't abandon us forever. He has mercy. He is going to have mercy on us. He'll never do this thing. Now, we might, ex- we might uh, expect that at the halfway point, God will come through. You know, usually there's a pivot at the halfway point, uh, chiastic structures and all that. We expect there to be maybe a transition at the letter Kaf or Lamed or Mem in the middle of the alphabet. It doesn't happen, okay? The guy's still waiting. He's hoping. God's going to be good. His chesed is going to be fine. It doesn't seem like anything moves. Um, he continues with his face in God, and nothing happens. And suddenly in verse 40, what does he say? He says, you know what? Maybe there's something wrong with me. Remarkable. He's still... Holding his belief. Verse 40, very famous Pasuk. We said in, in, in Slichot. Let us search our ways and examine them. And we will return to God. Remember before we lifted up our hands to God? Now, what are we going to put in our hands? Our hearts. We will lift, put our heart in our hands. El El to God. Here we see a vidoy, a confession. We sinned, but you also, he's not glad he got off the hook, you didn't forgive, right? And, you chased us, 
You killed without mercy, admittedly. Very interesting phrase in Pasuk 44 in Mem Dalad. Sakota ba'amanlach me'avor tefillah. Let me just say something. This is the word sakota, which is like the word sukkah. In every instance, I've checked it up. I've checked every place, right? Every place where the word sukkah is used is generally a sense of protection by God, which protects us from the sun, or a sense of the shina, being kind to man. This is the only place where the word sukkah is a sense of covering, which is a barrier, right? What is this barrier? Still, you have, with your clouds, you have made a screen, and you're not letting any prayer through. Whichever way. I'm not going to go through every line of the chapter, right? Nothing's moving. The guy's full of faith. Nothing's happening for God. Verse 49, what does he start doing? He starts crying. What's he going to do? He's desperate, right? Look at verse 55. What does he do? Verse 55. I call your name. Hashem. By the way, we're at Kuf. We're almost at the end of the alphabet, right? Right at the end of the chapter. I'm in the lowest pit. I call your name. And what happens? You heard my voice. Suddenly God pulls through right at the end. And now he says, He senses God's listening. Right? Stay listening, he says to God. You came near and Amarta, what does God say? The first words we hear from God, Al-Tira, don't be frightened. It's going to be okay. You redeemed my life. You judged my judgment. And you saw my, uh, my, my need for vengeance. So, complete different scene than the previous chapter, okay? What are we seeing here? We are indeed seeing a suffering servant, and on the one hand, he knows that he has sinned, right? He says very clearly that um, we need to do tshuva. He does, he admits everything we said in chapter 2, that God is, is, is being cruel and God is being the enemy. At the beginning of the chapter, we don't even mention God's name. He's so elusive, he's so hidden, all you are, you're in the dark, broken, beaten, with all sorts of things popping out of you in the night, right? Suddenly the man decides, he goes through that shell shock of realizing, and he starts turning to God and expresses endless faith that God will eventually pull through. And where is God? Nowhere to be found. He starts theologizing, he starts trying to do tshuva. Right at the end of the chapter, out of the depth, out of the depths, suddenly God comes through. Um, when I read Eicha, I'm not going to go through cha- chapter 4, and cha- you're, ba- you're waiting for me to go through 4 and 5 and find another two images. I wish I could, right? Um, not because of time. I don't find the images of, in chapter 4 and 5 so radically different from the images we've seen. So I'm not going to go through those, although you're welcome to continue the exercise. But I do think that chapter 1, 2, and 3 offer us three remarkably different images of God. Um, and as I say... Maybe these are three different stages of uh, the Churban. Maybe the first one is the initial stage of the humiliation of the nation. second one is where a person realizes the extent of the devastation. The last one, after things have, uh, the enemy's even gone and just left with sort of bleak, 
burnt, devastated landscape. Maybe these are three different people who all have different experiences. But I, I find it amazing and even inspirational that there are these three voices. One is very much Siduk Hadin, justifying God. The second one is angry with God and holds up the, the dead children to God. The last one holds out for God and sees God as involved, but a source of faith. This uh, image comes through uh, in, in many different uh, guises, um, but if you can refer to the sheet which I gave out, um, and if you don't have, I've got one spare. Does anybody? Who's not a spare? Okay. Does another one here spare? Spare one here. Okay. Very well. Thank you. Um, I just would like to show you how this comes through. Um, it's not only an Eicha that these voices come through. If you look at the. Um, if you look at the kinot that we are going to recite on the night of Tisha B'Av, you will see um, one of the famous kinot. If you look at the table at the bottom of the sheet, uh, the one on the right-hand side, the kinot recited on the night of Tisha B'Av, I brought this one because it's just so, it's very, very famous. But you can see here, it, it begins, Zechor Hashem Mehayalanu, Oi, God, uh, remember what happened to us. Oi Mehayalanu, we bemoan what happened to us. And... Um, then we go into a list, I haven't taken every verse, of things which happened to us, but we say, why did they happen? They happened because we're guilty. If you look here, if, for example, I'll read it in English. Uh, we were pursued by our necks. Oh, I can't help it. I'm going to read the Hebrew as well. We were pursued by our necks. Oi, right? Why? Why our necks? Why do we feel the yoke? Why? We pursued brotherly hatred. We had our hand on the necks of our brothers. Oh, what has come to us. We have to uh, get bread at risk of our lives. Why? Because we didn't give bread to poor people. Whoa, what has happened to us? Women in Zion were raped. Why? Because Men were promiscuous with uh, having affairs, etc., etc. There is a sense in this, and this, not only this kina, not only this lament poem, but in others, of a sense of getting what we deserve, getting our just desserts, where, like chapter 1, God is the judge, we admit our guilt, and we say, we have what's coming to us. However, there are other voices too in our kinot. And if you look at the one on the left-hand left, left side, Ba'ata one of the ones we say on the morning of Tisha B'Av. Look at this one. Ba'ata God, you said, You'll be great to us, and you'll be an amazing people. If that's true, and if you want to keep your promises, God, Where the heck were you? When all these nations were coming and desecrating your people, didn't you promise that we would be the greatest of all people? Second verse. You rejected the other nation and chose the Jewish people. So, why did you allow another nation to come and try and destroy the Jewish people? Or the third verse. You chose this holy mountain. 
And therefore, why did you pull back and um, desecrate your own, your own throne? By the way, the Kenai immediately after this is, um, once again, it's almost as like the Kina booklet can't cope with this heresy, right? Can't cope with the fact that we say, God, you promised, you didn't keep your promises, and therefore the very next uh, Kina in the book of Kinot reaffirms that God keeps his promises and God is right, and goes back to the image of the one on the right-hand side. But uh, what I wanted to, to emphasize is that uh, what you have here are indeed these different voices, um, just like in Eicha. These voices come through not just through our scriptures, not just through the book of Eicha, but they come through in the Kinot, in the medieval poems which were written to lament both the destruction of the temple and all sorts of other uh, tragedies that have befallen the Jews throughout the ages. Now what are we going to do with these voices which seem to be so radical? So first of all, I would say, um, I, I do say, I think this is a very, very important exercise. Sometimes, especially in uh, orthodox circles, we're so protective of God. Um, God has got to be perfect and righteous in all his ways, that we're very afraid to, how should I say it, be honest to God, to really talk to God. And what you find in, throughout Tanakh is, uh, of course, a sense of reverence for God, but sometimes you find uh, tough talk, whether it's uh, Abraham, Right, who's talking directly about Sodom, whether it's uh, Moshe who turns around in the situation with Korach and says, you can't just kill everybody like that. And other people throughout history, you find, who turn to God in deep prayer and are not willing to accept the way that God is going to run the world. This continues both through endless number of stories in the Talmud to the stories, the famous story about Rabbi, the stories of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Berdichev and the Val Shem Tov in the Hasidic canon stories where people turn around to God and uh, plead that God should act differently than he was intending on doing. I would even say it's important to call God for what he's doing. But here we run into a problem. Because of course if we turn God into our enemy, it's one thing for God to be our judge but our enemy, we might very easily lose faith in God or reject God. So our last source for tonight is going to be to, to, to follow a fascinating journey that takes place in the generations after the destruction of the temple. And this you see in the top source, which comes from the Gemara in Yuma, Daf Samachtet, um, relating to the men of the Great Assembly. The men of the Great Assembly are sort of mysterious group, the Unshaken Hasidah the rabbis say that the instigator of the men of the Great Assembly were people like Ezra and Nehemiah. But certainly, let's say for our purposes, that this group uh, are inst instituted in the time of the Second Temple. Uh, let's say 100 or maybe even 150 years after the destruction of the First Temple. People are still living, so to speak, in the, in the shadow of the Holocaust. What else can we call it, right? As far as they were concerned, that's what it was. It's still a very looming presence in their life. And these men are called the men of the great assembly, right? So that Gemara wants to know, So what was so gadol about this Knesset? Right? That's what the uh, Talmud wants to, wants to say. I'll read it through with you. You've got the translation here. Rabbi Yeshua Malevi said, Why were they called the men of the great assembly? Answer, 
What was great about them was they restored God's honor. Sheikh Ziru Atara Yoshna. I know many of you think that that is just about uh, the Shas party, right? Ziru Atara Yoshna, right? But no, it actually was said originally about the men of the Great Assembly. They restored the crown to its original place. Now, here when they're talking about the crown, they're talking about God's crown. In other words, they put God's crown, which had toppled off his head, and put it back on. I know this sounds sacrilegious, but that's what the Talmud says. Let's see why. Now, the Talmud's now going to do something very clever. They're going to take a verse of Moshe, where Moshe says in Tvarim, Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanorah. Okay? Something we quote in our prayers. And then we're going to find other people uh, who quote the same phrase, but miss out various things. So let's see. Moshe Amar, Moses said, Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanorah. The great God, the mighty, and the awesome. Okay? Yirmiyahu comes along and says, if, if Gentiles have taken over his temple, I he doesn't sound very fearful to me. He's not very Nora. When you find in Yirmiyahu, you will find a line where he calls to God and says, And what does he miss out? The word? Nora. He says, I can't call God Nora. Obviously, he can't be very awesome or fearful because nobody's scared of him, right? The Babylonians are all over the temple. And lo amar gibor, ata inu va'amru, what did they come, uh, sorry, ata Daniel, Daniel said, nachrim ishtadim banin, if uh, we are in exile amongst the nations and we are enslaved, ayegvoratav, God can't be very strong, lo amar gibor. Now what you see is they're almost chipping away at the prestige of God. God according to Moshe was God, Ha'el, Hagadol, large, Gibor, Manorah, he's strong and he's fearful. But in the wake of Jewish history, people are saying, wait, God doesn't look very fearful, God doesn't look very strong. In fact, he looks very weak to us and not particularly intimidating. In other words, Jewish history can really make us ask questions. And those questions are legitimate. Uh, who asked them? Jeremiah and Daniel, right? You can't get, you know, more legit people than that. Ah. So what did the men of the Great Assembly do? They do a classic rabbinic exercise in reinterpretation. They say the following, you know what? We can do it. Ata inu vamru, they said, Adaraba, you want to know how he's gibar? Zoe gvurat gvurato, this is how he's so gibar, shekoveshititzro. <laughs> God is so gibar, you're waiting for him to lash back. God's not lashing back. That's true strength, right? Maybe there'll come a time when he will, but for now... God's holding back. So you can say Gibor. He's just expressing his gvura, his strength differently. Right? And he's giving even the evil a second chance. And this is the way that he is awesome or fearful. Why? I'll tell you what's so unbelievable about God. The survival of the Jewish people. You thought it was that God fills his temple and everybody would be afraid of him? No, I'll tell you what is so norah, what is so amazing about God, that the Jewish people are scattered amongst the exiles and they still exist, right? If it wasn't for the fear of God or for the greatness of God, how can one small nation continue to, per, to, to prevail amongst all the other nations? Amazing, right? Now look at this. Verabanan. 
So they've restored God's honor. But now the Gemara asks the obvious question. Rabbanan, Hechi Avdi Vakri Takanta Dataki Moshe. Moshe said, Ha'el Hagadol Hagibor Vahanora. How can you just take out words? Daniel, don't say Gibor. Jeremiah, don't say Nora. You can't change the words. It's in the prayer book. Right? You can't do such a thing. Omar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar said, Mitoch Shiodim Bakarosh Baruchu Sha'amitihu. They know that God is a God of truth. They didn't feel they could lie about him. They didn't feel they could lie about him. Amazing, amazing reality. And, uh, you know, when you do hear sometimes the story or the stories of Holocaust survivors who have gone through something akin to the Khorban or worse, and uh, for whatever reason... Uh, they have lost their faith, or their faith has, faith has taken a knock. Um, and I remember once reading a story that Rabbi Riskin wrote about uh, somebody in his shul who he asked to be a shliach tzibor for Neila. Year after year, he said, you've got a beautiful voice, you get on with everybody in the kehillah, and please be the shliach tzibor. And every year he refused, and eventually he was stuck for a whole variety of reasons. You can read it in his book. And he said to him, you know, I really, I need you. And he says, no, I cannot double for Neila because I am a sinner. And he said, who could be a sinner like you? You went through the concentration camps. You come to shul three times a day. You're the pillar of the community. And he says, um, I eat on Tisha B'Av. And he says, well, why? What's, what's the story? You're so general. He says, well, when I came out of the camps, uh, when I came out of the concentration camps, I was really angry with God. And I was thinking about giving up my entire Judaism. And then I remembered that I am the only, you know, remnant of my family. And my father kept halacha. And my grandfather, my grandfather's guy said, I have to keep halacha. But I'm going to show him. Every Tisha B'Av, I'm going to eat. <laughs> and that's what I do every single year. And I think Rabbi Riskin said to him, I think you're a very appropriate belt filler. <laughs> uh, um, there is a sense of being honest with God. God is amiti. God is true, right? In other words, you wouldn't be, remember how we started, it's not the voice of the prophet, this is, if this is the voice of the prophet, this is the voice of the man in the prophet, not the prophet in the man. And as a human being, he has to be honest with God, if he really believes that God is in charge, he has to say, and here we see one voice which says, God, you judge me and I'm guilty. That's one voice. But another equally honest voice is going to say, God, what are you doing? How have you become our enemy? We thought you, we were your people. And the last one is an image of somebody who indeed is suffering and doesn't deny that either, but has enormous faith. So much faith that even when God makes a screen and won't accept the tefillah, right? Satam tefillati, sakota. We made a screen. It's almost as if with the power of his faith, he forces God out of his hiding. With the power of his emunah, with the power of his faith in God, he manages to induce God to sort of pull God back into the relationship. In this regard, I don't see any of this as sacrilegious. I feel, feel that this is the deepest, the deepest level of relationship with God. As we're seeing incredible tumultuous events, how could we not, if we are people of faith, how could we not go and take the depth of that faith and really engage in an honest dialogue with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So, thank you very much for coming. I hope that as you read in, in a couple of weeks the words of Eicha, and of course we always hope that we won't have to read it again, but, um, you know, 
This is the, the reality that we are in, but I hope that we'll be able to understand it with greater pathos, with greater meaning, and with greater depth. I wish you all a good evening. Thank you for coming. Thank you again for listening to Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Produce North America. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.